Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? That's a commonly asked question. It's a hotly debated question, especially among sports fans. Who's the greatest? Is Tom Brady the greatest football player of all time? Who's, the, who's better? Who's, who's greater, LeBron or Michael? Okay, well, we, we, that's just rhetorical. We all know it's Michael. Let's keep going. I read a book recently called The Baseball 100. The Baseball 100. And the author of the book, he ranks the 100 greatest baseball players of all time. He's asking the question, who's the greatest? And he, he makes his case beautifully, statistically, methodically, and anecdotally over the course of 900 pages. This is a beast of a book. It's a great book, though. By the way, the Braves won the World Series last year. Praise the Lord. Now, he admits in the book that most of his readers will not agree with his rankings. And I certainly didn't. This debate, who is the great? It's a fun thing for sports fans to debate. But it doesn't matter. Whatever the topic is, you can talk to people who are into politics. Who's the greatest president? You can talk any topic. This idea of who's the greatest comes up. Now, this is a question to debate in sports and other other areas. But when it comes to followers of Jesus Christ, when it comes to the Christian church, this question is obscene. It's utterly inappropriate for Christians to debate among themselves which one of us is the greatest disciple. And yet, that's exactly what happens this morning in our passage, in our studies in the gospel according to Luke. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9, verse 46. We've been in Luke's gospel for about 14 years, and we've been in Luke 9 for about 10 years. Um, But there's so much here to see. And in, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page uh, 867. So if you're not used to looking at a Bible, when I say chapter 9, that's the big number 9. And then the verse numbers are those little sentence numbers. So big number 9, little number 46. And you'll be helped by having your Bible open as we read through this passage and study it together. Now, you remember in Luke chapter 9, I've said this repeatedly. It's a transition point in Luke's gospel. Jesus is now in verse 51 that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. He's making his long promised march to Jerusalem. He won't arrive to Jerusalem until chapters 18 and 19. So the rest of the time as he's going to the cross, Jesus teaches the way of the cross. What does it mean to be his disciple? That's what Luke chapter 9 is about. Discipleship. Your individual following of King Jesus. He says in verse 22, what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem? Verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, rise again. And in Luke chapter nine, he looks at each one of us and says, follow me. So in verse 37, we saw to the end of the chapter, Jesus, because he loves us, He wants you and me to know the obstacles that stand in the way to your discipleship. What are the obstacles in the way? Last week, we saw the main obstacle that we face is unbelief. This morning, Jesus introduces a second obstacle that every one of us will face 
if you follow Jesus in this world, namely pride. Let's begin reading in verse 46. This is what God's word says. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This morning, brothers and sisters, I have one aim to answer this one question, namely, what does it mean? to be truly great in the eyes of God. What does it mean to be truly great? Not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God. Let's go through the passage verse by verse. I'm gonna just go through the story again and then we'll draw some implications at the end. First thing to see, first kind of heading, verse 46, true greatness debated. True greatness debated. Verse 46. In verse 46, we discover the disciples debating true greatness. They're having an appalling argument that's happening among themselves. Look again at verse 46. Your Bible may say an argument or a, it's, it's the word for dispute arose among them. That is among the 12 apostles. And what, what was it about? As to which of them was the greatest. So Luke tells us that there's a debate, there's a dispute, there's a battle, there's a, an argument. Your Bible might say argument that's going on. Now, this kind of comes out of the blue, so we need to pay attention to the context to kind of figure out how do the disciples get to this low point, this debate, Well, remember, back in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16, Jesus prayed all night long before he chose the apostles. He chooses the apostles personally the next day. And then in chapter 6 to 8, we've noticed that the apostles, this 12, they get the VIP treatment from Jesus. They're with Jesus. They go with him everywhere. They receive his instructions. They have a front row seat to his signs and wonders. Jesus reveals certain truths only to the apostles, not to the crowds. And we're told in chapter nine, Jesus empowered them, commissioned them, and sends them out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom from village to village. And he gives them power to exercise authority over demons. They were special and they knew it. Three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they've just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? And who did they get to hang out with on the Mount of Transfiguration? Not only a glorified Jesus, but also two other people you've heard of, Moses and Elijah. So that's just happened. Jesus was telling and talking to Moses and Elijah about the exodus that he's about to perform in Jerusalem. 
That's verses 26 to 36. So it's good to remind ourselves because our, our world is not as different in many ways as the first century. Just like today, in the first century in the Roman Empire, it was commonly believed that greatness was determined by the ones you keep company with. You could determine if someone was great by looking at the people they hang out with. If you're great, you hang out with the great. You don't hang out with the lowly. That would diminish your greatness. And so think about this. They've come down from the mountaintop. Maybe that mountaintop experience kind of uh, uh, influenced this This argument that starts, we're not sure. But the point of it is, the great people hang out with great people. They've just been hanging out with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Maybe that was a part of it. Mark, in his account of this, does give us one little detail that's worth noting. That kind of helps us understand why they're arguing. Listen to this. Right after the transfiguration, Mark tells us that two of the disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, They come up to Jesus and this is what they say. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. (laughs) Now, has your child ever done this? Right. Our kids have done this. Mom, dad, I'm going to ask you for something and you got to say yes. But I'm going to tell you, you you have to agree before we do it. Right. That's what the disciples do. Jesus, we're going to ask you something and you got to say yes. Well, what do they ask? Jesus, what do you want me to do? Grant us to sit. One on your right and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Now, we know later in Mark's gospel, there will be someone on Jesus's right and his left on the cross when he's lifted up. And Jesus, that, that's not prepared for you. And Jesus says, are you ready to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And they're like, yes, we're ready. And Jesus says, that's not, that's not yours to ask and it's not, it's, not, it's not yours to have. But we're told in Mark 10, 41, listen, here's the point. Right after they ask this, give us the prominent position. We're told in verse 41, when, <clears throat> when the 10 heard it, they became angry at James and John. That's the context of this dispute. That's the context. Who is the greatest among us? Now, I want you to know something. They're arguing over this. I just want you to know it's an application, a really brief application. Pride ruins unity. Pride ruins unity. In marriages, in relationships, in the workplace, on sports teams, kids, and in the church. You want to just fracture relationships? Just interject pride. This is why the apostles are constantly calling churches to pursue unity through humility, right? Well, you can see it. Who's the greatest among us? This prideful debate. What happens? An argument breaks out. Unity is fractured among the apostolic team. So just for a minute, just think about the blindness of the disciples at this point. Now, they may have believed more than their 
wicked and faithless generation. But just think about this. You come down the mountainside having seen Jesus in his glory. And the first thing out of your mouth is, I wonder which one of us is great. It's mind blowing. Which one of us is the greatest? Now, Luke has left us no doubt, right? You don't even need the transfiguration to know this. At the very beginning of Luke's gospel, we're told who the great one is. Remember what the angel told Mary? He will be great and he will be called son of the most high. And the Lord, our God, will give him the father, his throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be what? No end. No one reading Luke's gospel should be asking the question, who's great? Jesus is the one who's great. But I, I want to just before we, you know, it's easy to dunk on the disciples. So let me press on a bit. I want to offend all of you. Here we go. Do you see any of this pride, any of this plague? This is, this is like an inferno of pride. Do you see any of the plague of pride in your own heart? How does, how does pride show itself in your life? We, obviously, when we boast, that's easy. But let's press in a little bit. Pride is deceitful. Pride is very deceitful. Pride has a thousand faces and wears a thousand masks. Pride shows up in the ways that you sinfully compare yourself with others. You compare your job, you compare your who you know, you compare how much you make, you compare. We, you can even take something like your children. Maybe your children are really obedient and you see some other family and they're Kids aren't as obedient and you just, wow, it must be hard. You see what I'm saying? Even something good. But you can look down on others with contempt. Maybe it's your good looks. Maybe it's your IQ. Maybe it's your resume. You, you name it. You can struggle and give in to pride because you're making that silent calculation. I'm greater than that person. Now, we may not say that, but we think it. Maybe your pride reveals itself in always putting yourself first and never last. Uh, I'm thinking of 3 John 9. Maybe you've not read 3 John recently. Go read 3 John 9. A desire to put yourself first in everything. You have to win no matter the cost, even if you have to cut corners because you have to be first. Nothing wrong with competing. I love competing. But ask yourself, why, why do I have to win every time? Maybe it's pride. Maybe your pride shows itself in a desire to, to be known and praised by others. You really love when important people praise you and acknowledge you. This is rampant on social media. So you work hard to be seen and heard by others. William Gurnall, one of the great Puritan writers, he put it like this. Kids, you, you'll get this. Listen up. Pride loves to climb up, not to see Christ like Zacchaeus did, but to be seen by others. See the difference? 
Pride loves to climb up because it wants to be seen by others. Not to see Christ, but to be seen. Well, friend, listen. This passage is in the Bible for disciples of Jesus. Because Jesus wants you to know this morning, you have a pride problem. You have a pride problem. And your pride is one of the main obstacles to you following Jesus. And so Jesus, in his love, deals with our pride. In this passage, he wants us to know that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so a, a quote that you might want to memorize. This was, I've come back to this so many times over the years. This is a quote about this passage from John Stott. John Stott who's gone to be with the Lord. He said this, listen to this, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, here it is, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. Pride is your greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. So Jesus begins by by focusing our attention on this debate over true greatness. True greatness debated. But then number two, the second thing we see through the end of the chapter, is just two points. True greatness defined. True greatness defined. Verses 47 to 50. In these next few verses, Jesus redefines for his disciples the meaning of true greatness. He starts by making a contrast there in verse 47. But Jesus, now I love these kind of little throwaway comments by Luke. But Jesus, look at this, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Now, don't just skip over that. When you read that, you should stop and be like, okay, so Luke doesn't say Jesus overhearing their discussion. He says that Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. And if you know your Bible... You know, 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks on outward appearance, but only God knows the heart. It's just a little, little hint that Jesus is God in the flesh. He, he knows their thoughts. He knows what they're thinking in their hearts. That's what the, the verse means. Jesus knows what's going on. And so what does he do? Jesus wants to help his disciples. He wants to redefine their understanding of greatness. And so he has like a, what would basically be like an object lesson. He brings a child over, child standing right beside him. The child was old enough to stand up, but Mark tells us it's a little child. It's a little child just able to stand up. And this is striking. Now, in our culture, we idolize young people and we often despise the old. It was just the opposite in the first century. In the first century, Older people were revered. They were looked upon as wise. But in the Roman Empire, children had no power, no status, no rights. Children, if you had lived in the Roman Empire, you were, you were regarded as insignificant, unimpressive, and you'd often be ignored. Welcome. Now, according to Jewish traditions in the Talmud, Children on the age of 12, they weren't even allowed to be taught by a rabbi. Because, remember the idea? 
a rabbi, why would a rabbi waste his time instructing a 12-year-old or a 10-year-old? No, that would be a waste of time for the rabbi to do that. So the disciples were, were plagued by this thinking. We know this because if you keep reading in Luke's gospel, remember later on in Luke chapter 18, there's some children that are wanting to get access to Jesus. And remember what the disciples do? They don't say, everybody move out of the way. Let the children come in. They actually rebuke the children and they try to send them away. They're like, don't bother the teacher. Get away from him. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? And he, he rebukes the disciples. So the point of it is, if you're a disciple right here, your, your mindset is, if you are great, you associate with the great. That's what you don't associate with the lowly or the insignificant. That's not what a great person does. You associate with the great and in their minds, children aren't great. So Jesus redefines what what their thinking is on this. And what does he say to him? He says something shocking. Look at verse 48. Whoever receives this child, notice this phrase in my name, that is on behalf of me. Uh, for my renown, on my behalf. If you receive uh, or welcome one like this, this child, the lowly, insignificant in your eyes, in my name, then he says, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. So there's a, there's a level there. You receive these lowly, the child. He says, it's also a connection to the way you receive him who sent me, that is the Father. For he who is least, there's the key, among you all is the one who is great. This, this is completely the opposite of the way the disciples thought. Jesus sometimes speaks about having childlike faith. That's not what he's teaching in this passage. Jesus is saying he's challenging the worldly assumptions of greatness among his disciples. And he's helping them to see that this view of greatness needs to be replaced by a view of greatness that lines up with his kingdom. Whoever receives this little child or welcomes this child welcomes me. Jesus is not saying that the path of discipleship is to be nice to kids. We should be nice to kids. Kids, I'm so glad you're here. We should be kind to children. That's not what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, he's using this child as an object lesson to say that the path of discipleship is the path of humility. The path of discipleship is the path of humility. The path to, to receive a least in the eyes of the world marks humility in your life. Jesus is saying that those who are truly great, according to the eyes of God, are the ones who welcome with open arms the nobodies of this world. They receive with kindness those who are ignored by the world. So Jesus, we're told in chapter 4, verse 18, came to preach the good news to the poor. Chapter 4, verse 18. True greatness is revealed when you are content not only to be the least, but to love the least, to receive them with humility. I remember this passage, it's connected so clearly to Romans 15, 17. The same verb is used. 
Paul says to the church there, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. That's the posture of a Christian, that we welcome others with open arms. When God welcomed us, we were nobodies. We were weak. We were powerless. We were foolish. We were strangers. And God welcomed us with open arms. Remember, Paul was writing to a prideful church. Remember the church at Corinth? Um, Pretty prideful church. They had lots of factions. Remember that? Pride. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. They 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 were dividing because of pride. Pride ruins unity, right? And so how does Paul begin the letter to the, to, to the Corinthians? He begins by the word of the cross. The cross is what humbles us all. And then he reminds the Corinthians who were so into a worldly mindset of greatness. He says to them, consider your calling. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you of noble birth. But God chose what is what? Foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, so that he might bring to nothing and so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Then he said to the Corinthians, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who was made for you wisdom for God, righteousness and righteous and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, brothers and sisters, that's what Christian discipleship requires, that we walk the path of faith. That's what we saw last week. But this morning, Jesus is calling us to walk the path of of humility. True greatness in the kingdom of God is defined by humility. That's what true greatness means. True greatness requires us to be lowly. Jesus is going to say in chapter 14, verse 11, we just read it earlier. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be Exalted. I can't get through a sermon without quoting J.C. Ryle. So this is the best part of the sermon. So if you're sleeping, wake up. Here it is. J.C. Ryle says about this passage, of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. And of all men, none ought to be so humble as a Christian. Are we followers of Jesus who was meek and lowly, who humbled himself for our sakes? then let us have the same mind which is in him, in us. And in lowliness of mind, let us esteem others as better than ourselves. Let us be ready on all occasions to take the lowest place for the Savior's words ought to ring in our ears continually. He that is least among you shall be called great. Friend, do you see that what it means to follow Jesus is that right here in this passage, he crucifies your vision of what it means to be great in the world. He says you must die to that. 
Now, this doesn't just ruin unity, right? Pride not only ruins unity, but in this passage at the very end, we also see that pride, the reason we have to pursue humility, not pride, it actually breeds exclusivity. Look there at verse 49. Right after saying this, you're thinking that that maybe the disciples would get it. Well, verse, verse 49 John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But then notice what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Apparently, during this ministry, John and the others had encountered someone who was kind of doing like freelance demon exorcisms, right? He was kind of outside the, the company, right? Wasn't with Jesus. But notice he wasn't, he was doing this in Christ's name. You see that? So he's doing it in the name of Christ. Now, instead of coming alongside that person and praying for them and encouraging them and giving them a high five and saying, go team Jesus, they actually try to stop the guy. They stop him. They try to stop him. They're not successful, but they try. Now, the the irony is, just a few verses earlier, what were the disciples unable to do? (laughs) Exercise a demon. It's, It's just amazing. Like, they couldn't even do it because of their unbelief. They see someone doing it, and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's our sector of the business, not yours. Stop it. Now, friend, this kind of self importance is also a form of pride. Uh, It's like gangrene. It it will spread everywhere. It happens on a personal level, but it also happens on a a congregational level in churches. Um, This is kind of an aside, but one of the reasons that we pray for other churches uh, almost every Sunday morning when we gather, we pray for churches that are Baptist churches and gospel preaching Presbyterian churches and Anglican churches and Bible churches. We pray for lots of different churches because It's about God's glory in this world. It's not about our particular church or our particular denomination. It's about those who love Christ and herald his gospel. So we we all have an enemy named Satan. (laughs) So that's the enemy that we're all the common enemy, enemy that we share. So let this be an encouragement to us. Just because you may see other churches who believe the gospel doing things differently than maybe we do, that doesn't mean it's your job to go critique them. Now, even if they're wrong in some of the things that they do, even if they're wrong, we ought to also humbly ask ourselves, are we in the God-given role to speak a word of correction to them? Or are there others in their midst that can do that better than we can? Doesn't mean you don't ever stand up for things you believe. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that we need to pray for humility to be able to speak the truth in love in the ways that God has called us to. So what I, what I pray for in this church is I pray for Franconia Baptist Church to be a congregation with a theological backbone of steel and with a large hearted word of grace to others that may differ from them in some of the things that don't matter. In the long run, I remember reading a, 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 something about J.C. Ryle, the guy we quoted earlier at his funeral. 
someone that he actually disagreed with a lot said something about him. He said this, quote, he was a man of granite with the heart of a child. Isn't that great? A man of granite, someone who stood on the foundation of God's word and wouldn't budge. But he had a heart that was prone to show grace and love to others. Now, this is not just J.C. Ryle. Who cares about J.C. Ryle? Think about Joshua. Joshua comes to Moses in Numbers chapter, uh, chapter 11 and says to Moses, Hey, Moses, there's some other elders in the camp who have your spirit who are preaching. Should we stop them? And Moses looks at him like, are you crazy, Joshua? He goes, are you jealous for my sake, Joshua? I wish all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. When Paul is languishing in prison and he hears that there's some preachers who are preaching the gospel to cause him pain, right? Out of, out of, out of bad motives. Paul says, remember what he says? This is Philippians 1.18. Does he say, tell them to stop preaching? No. He says, what then, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. So brothers and sisters, true greatness requires true humility. A great church is a humble church. A great Christian is a humble Christian. That's what Jesus is getting at here. So let me close with just a few words of application and then we'll close our time by singing again together. True greatness displayed. Number three, true greatness displayed. Just a few points of application. How do we think of Christian discipleship if pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend? Let's think about this first. Number one, we ought to humble ourselves before the cross of Christ. Let's humble ourselves before the cross of Christ. It's really hard to be prideful when you're in the shadow of the cross. We, we sang earlier that God would pour contempt on all our pride when we're considering the one who was crucified for us. Luke 9 reminds us that Jesus, who is truly great, is on his way to die a shameful death, bearing the wrath of God for sinners on the cross. And friend, have you ever thought about it? He died for your sins of pride. Our pride was a sin that Jesus suffered for. And so we ought to be amazed when we read in Philippians chapter two, verse five, that the one who is in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Friend, if you're here and you wonder what's the, what's, what's the, the point of the gospel, it's this. We have sinned against our maker. We've rebelled against him. 
But in his love, he sent his eternal son to take on flesh, to live the life we were supposed to live and haven't. And he humbly died on the cross as a servant, bearing the wrath of our sins because God is just. We only care when someone sins against us. God cares about every injustice that's ever been committed in this world. And it will either be paid for on the cross or in hell because he's good. He's a good God and he's just and he's righteous. And because he's good, he offers forgiveness to anyone who would receive the Lord Jesus Christ, who would humble themselves by casting themselves on Christ's mercy. By receiving him in the empty hands of faith. So friend, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not a follower of Christ, that's what this passage is calling you to. To humble yourselves by casting yourself on the mercy of the one who came to serve and die on the cross for sinners. Will you do that this morning? Or is that beneath you? We need to humble ourselves before the cross. But number two, quickly, let's humble ourselves before the word of God. As a church, one of the reasons we gather every Lord's Day is we need to be humbled by God's word. Um, We just read in the very first passage in in our service, this is the one to whom I will look. Isaiah 66, 2, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Pray that as a church and pray individually that we would be a people who, when we receive God's word, we're knowledgeable that we're receiving the very words of the living God. And so as we approach the Bible, we approach the Bible humbly asking for God's help to read it and understand it and apply it. And we put ourselves under God's word and submit ourselves to God's word. And if God's word says it, we believe it. The one who God will consider is the one who hears and believes. Martin Luther that we just talked about in the last hour, he said one time, ears are the only organ of the Christian. Ears, because faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. That's why when we have our services together, the very first thing we hear at the beginning of our service is God speaking to us, calling us to worship. So let's humble ourselves before the word of God. Number three, let's humble ourselves before the Lord in prayer. Do you realize every time you pray, it's an exercise in humility? You realize that? Because you're, you're basically saying, I can't do this. I need this. I need help. And so I love the fact that God has called us to prayer because he knows we're prideful. We, we know that we try to do things apart from the Lord. And in our own strength. And so let us be a people who strive by God's grace to pray. First Peter 5 says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. So a praying church is a humble church. A praying Christian is a humble Christian. If you're prideful, here's the one application from this passage. Pray. (laughs) Your only hope is prayer. Get on your knees before God, confess your pride and ask him to change your heart. Number four, and this is, we'll be done. 
I love how in this chapter on discipleship, he's going to teach the disciples along the way of what it means to serve in his kingdom. And the posture of our service is shaped by humility. And so number four, let's humble ourselves before the Lord in his service, in his service. I wish I could say that the disciples after this lesson, they got it. And they were just like, we got it. We're going to be humble. You may not realize this. If you keep reading Luke's gospel, it's always good to just constantly be reading the gospel of Luke. If you're studying the gospel of Luke, this happens one other time in Luke's gospel. Do you remember what it is on the night? Jesus was betrayed. He's just gathered his disciples together for the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Remember, he's just taken the bread and the cup and he said, my body is going to be broken. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He's just given them these instructions. And we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And then Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves for who is greater one who reclines at table or one who serves it is not is is it not the one who reclines at the table but i listen am among you as one who serves the greatest most exalted most glorious person in all the universe is jesus christ our lord And he also happens to be the most humble person in the universe. The great one came to serve. And so let us ask, am I serving? So many of you in this church are serving, serving. And I'm so thankful for you. But perhaps you're here and you haven't found a place to serve. It'd be a good time to ask, where can I serve? How can God use me to serve? Who's the greatest? The Lord Jesus Christ is. And our posture ought to be not that we have to serve, but that we get to serve. We serve the Lord of glory who became a servant among us in order to serve us by giving his life as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We get to serve him. He doesn't have any needs, but he calls us to serve him. And so the response that we ought to have this morning ought to be, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So what an honor to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We sang earlier, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of glory died, 
My richest gain, I count but what? Loss. And poor contempt on all my pride. I pray that that God does that for each one of us this day. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you that he is not only our Savior and our Lord and our King and our Redeemer, but you also call us to imitate him, to follow him as our master. And so we pray just as he walked all the way to the cross, humbling himself every step of the way, that our two, our lives would be marked in this world as we seek to be humble, as we pursue the greatness of your kingdom through the path of humility. Make us humble, we pray, and exalt us in due time to the glory of your name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.